Um, yesterday I spoke about you know how the wrong application of attention can lead us into increasing disconnection and fragmentation and dysfunction you know as a as a person as a family as a community but even as a whole you know civilization and uh, you know, there's a new catchphrase out there which is uh, called attention economy because you know the attention span which we can um, apply to information is limited and so there's a fight going on you know to, to harvest as much attention from people to for things you know which are not necessarily very wholesome, you know, for life on the planet and we can see, you know, what repercussion it has and that's also why we do this uh, relinquishing ceremony of our cell phones because those, those machines, you know, they have brought us a lot of good stuff but also it comes with a high price which especially young people, you know, are paying today who have grown up with those uh, different you know, devices and they don't even know a life without it. For me, I, you know, I was about in my early 30s when I started to get in touch with computers. It was actually at Amaravati Monastery in, in England where I started to, to learn that besides other things. And I find it very interesting, you know, the, no, the name Homo sapiens, the name we have given uh, to our, our species. Sapiens means something like wise person. But the word sapiens comes from the Latin word sapere, which means to taste. So that means, you know, actually wisdom or wise Understanding comes from an intimate relationship to our experience. Like we can sometimes see in little babies, if, if you give them something and they want to know what it is, they put it in their mouth because that's the most, the closest way of interacting with an object. And Sapere, so the little baby really wants to taste, you know, how a toy is or, or whatever it, it takes in the mouth. And uh, it's powerful, you know, that connection being in the name we have given ourselves. So this intimacy of relationship, and it's also a hallmark of the Buddha's teaching, where everything is about how do I relate to my experience. The experience is actually secondary, but the way how we relate to it you know, are we gonna identify with the experience and lose ourselves in it? Or can we stay aware of what's happening, including also the, the way we relate to the experience? Is there aversion? Is there greed? Or is there, you know, delusion in, operat in operation, in relationship to our experience? Because we can't do a lot 
about what crosses our path necessarily, but what we can do a lot about is cultivating wholesome ways of relating to the experience. And that's what the, you know, the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path is all about, giving us instructions on how best to relate to our experience in order to have increasingly favorable circumstances for practice emerging in our life, plus also increasing freedom from being bound and being identified with our experience. So there's more and more space around our experience and through that we can also see the connection and the conditionality of those experiences and then through that seeing and understanding, letting go happens. The filters start to drop away and then we start to live in a bigger and bigger world, so to say. And through that, you know, largeness, we have more and more perspective on what's happening. And yeah, it starts very simple with noticing our relationship to our experience. Just simply now, you know, sitting here in this hall and, you know, being with your body, however it is, and maybe comfortable or uncomfortable. And there's a little bit we can do about that, but we need to also notice our relationship to our experience. And then through that noticing, we start to be no longer bound to that. And you know, the word for full awakening is also translated as unbinding. There might still, discomfort will still arise, but we are not bound by that. And, and not only on the cushion, but also most of all important in daily life, because that's why we are practicing, so that we can then carry that capacity of knowing how we are relating into our lives. And from that spaciousness and from that um, awareness, then we can decide, you know, what to do about what's happening. Sometimes there's something we need to do and sometimes we can't do anything and then just let it be. And the whole spectrum. And just, you know, noticing where am I right now? Where do I want to go? And what is the right response? That's in a nutshell, you know, what the Buddha's uh, teachings are all about, to empower us in that way. And, you know, we have taken the refugees and the precepts at the beginning of the retreat. That's kind of the support system, you know, the compass. The refugees are like a compass showing us in which direction to go. And the precepts help us, you know, to stay within the limits of wholesome action and speech and livelihood. And with that, you know, at our disposal, we have the basics, of, you know, laid out from which we then can meet our lives with a bit more confidence, you know. 
there will still be a lot of difficulty, but there is you know, the understanding that we are going in the right direction, which leads towards you know, unbinding from being completely caught up and also at the same time, you know, being wholesome responses which benefit ourselves and also those, you know, who are in contact with us. And uh, one of the chanting uh, phrases in Pali, you know, mentioned the qualities of the Dharma, and one of those qualities is Opanaiko, and it has been, you know, translated in different ways. Some people translate Opanaiko as leading inwards, and some translate it as leading onwards. And I think it means actually both at the same time. Because, you know, as we are going deeper into ourselves and start to, you know, dissolve some of those sticky patterns, also our past, you know, takes on more strength in the sense of having more, more and more conducive circumstances for practice. So inwards and onwards, they are connected with each other. They're reflecting each other. And then in the beginning of the practice, if that hasn't been fully understood yet, you know, there's very often uh, a sense of, you know, grasping and contracting around something we, we like or we don't like. And then as our practice unfolds, you know, there is more and more capacity to not react in that way and and being able you know to stay open with our experience and rather than you know being caught up in the head thinking and trying to make you know make a story out of this and what do I do next and so on and so forth there's more and more capacity to really sense into the body you know how this experience is manifesting in the body, where it is manifesting in the body, and being able to just be with that. And not to, you know, not to turn away into thinking. Because sometimes, you know, it can be very um, intense, you know, such experiences in the body, and what we all do, like, automatically is to just split off that intensity by going into the head and doing a lot of thinking. And that, that thinking, you know, that has a certain amount of, um, you know, aversion in it because we don't really want to be with the bodily experience. And that, you know, can then, you know, lead us more and more into complex entanglements, you know, which are uh, not really bringing us the results, you know, we are looking for. So whenever, you know, we are noticing that, the aversion, you know, to the bodily experience, then it would be a good thing to notice that and come back into the body and just being with 
the way it is. And you know, that's a, a practice which needs a lot of cultivation and a training. So that simple willingness, you know, to receive that which is happening, knowing, you know, through being with that bodily experience, something we may not have, you know, thought about or op uh, options, you know, we, we have not been able to consider might open up. But not, you know, splitting off the intense energy into the thinking process and then it's always the repetition of the same thing, the same thing, the same thing and you probably can, you know, notice that in your own practice, especially maybe at the beginning of the retreat, you know, when the mind isn't very much settled yet. We call that the hindrances, the five hindrances, and I think there's a poster in the uh, dining hall which speaks to those five hindrances and how they distort our perception. Whereas, you know, if we manage to not get caught up in one of those five ways and we can drop into the body, then, you know, it might not be a very pleasant experience for some time, but then if we allow the mud to settle, the muddy water, and if we don't stir it by thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking about it, it starts to settle at one point and then there is clarity. Whereas, you know, if we are caught up in one of the five hindrances, there is this assumption, you know, if we are thinking about it long enough, we're gonna sink our way to the end of it and that's part of why it's, why it's called a hindrance, you know, because that's a, a faulty uh, hope, you know, because it's not going to happen that way. And I think yesterday I mentioned that, you know, some great artists or scientists reporting on when they stopped thinking about something and gave up, you know, and maybe had a shower or went for a walk or something, then suddenly into that openness, something new was emerging. And that is a significant fact, you know, to, to come back to when we feel very caught up. Because it feels a bit, you know, counterintuitive. And then to just, you know, being willing to give it a try, maybe it, it actually does work. If we don't try, we'll never know. And, you know, we have, sometimes, you know, have like this tendency to, to shut down and settle on something because, just because we know it. And I have, you know, recently had an experience which was quite uh, insightful. I was uh, teaching in um, the Pacific Northwest and then after the retreat, somebody was taking me to show me the uh, spawning summons. Uh, there, you know, and I'd never seen seen them before, and I had no idea what to expect. 
So we were going into the forest and then she took me to a, a, a creek there and there was a little um, bridge, you know, you could stand on and, and see them. And then I just, and they were quite big, like about that size, you know, and, they, and the water was just that shallow. They were like sticking out of the water and, and some of them were, had already died, you know, and I, I didn't know that's what I'm going to see. So I was like, oh my God, they're all dead. And I was and immediately I thought that there's, there's something wrong here. And my whole body was like, ah, you know, that it shouldn't be like this because they, they, they shouldn't die for some reason. And, and then, you know, that woman who showed me that, she explained to me, you know, the cycle, what's happening really, you know, that they're swimming up to the home creek and then they lay the eggs and... Uh, and die, you know, and then after some time, the fry, the many, 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 many young little fish uh, swim back into the ocean. And, and then they spend their one, two or three years and come up again. And, and how that cycle, you know, nourishes so many uh, beings in the forest. They're all coming and taking those fish, and the bears and the coyotes and any other animals living there. And even, you know, the trees, uh, you know, are nourished by, by the dead fish. And I, I just felt like, you know, the, at the first sight, you know, when I was only referring to what I, what I knew, it was like a shock to me, you know, and my whole body contracted. And I felt like, why do you show me this? I don't want to see, you know, like so many dead fish. This is really not very inspiring. But then after she, she told me the whole, my perception expanded, you know, and then suddenly I felt a sense of awe, actually. You know, and I think this is what the Dhamma, you know, can provide us with in, in difficult times or in, you know, beautiful times. It can provide us with this expanded perception about what's really happening and not have, you know, only our own uh, understanding be the measuring stick for everything. Because I think that's the, the, the problem, you know, we are meeting now in a big scale, you know, where we have been putting ourselves into the center of everything because that's what we knew. But somehow now we are asked, you know, to include the modern human world as well because it doesn't really add up any longer. And for me, that experience with the fish was very, uh, you know, shook me up in a deep way that, uh, you know, there's a very different intelligence operating, which is so much vaster than our own. And also, you know, when those, uh, when the small fish they're coming from, this, from the sweet water into the ocean and they have to about, you know, for two weeks they, they are circling and circling and over those two weeks their whole system is reconstructed for living in ocean water. And then when they go back up, the same thing happens. For about two weeks they are just circling and the body is just adjusting to a complete different um, circumstances all by itself. 
So, you know, there are so many things in operation we can actually um, you know, take some inspiration from, I think, and also noticing, you know, that our own bodies are also doing a lot of, of work all by themselves. We are not, we don't have to do anything. So those bodies actually have a lot of intelligence and are much more than what we usually um, are conscious of. And this afternoon I'd like to you know, give a guided meditation on this, to just you know, have a different perspective on who we really are. In order you know, to actually you know, cultivate this sense of awe, which is an opening up of everything. And then if we can open up further, then we can also see connections we haven't been able to see before because we were too glued on on past information. And I think this is an avenue, you know, which is open to us and which becomes more and more um, audible, you know, not with the ear, but audible in a different way, you know, for, for intuition maybe or for a different way of listening, you know, at a time where we really need that. And I think, you know, that nature is responding to that need. And we just need to get interested. And that interest, you know, can be um, cultivated by having, you know, different methods, you know, to look at our own experience in a different way than usual. And having, you know, having the patience to practice that, like when we were learning an instrument or learning to drive a car, it takes some time. And it takes, you know, some willingness to come back to it. Basically, you know, cultivating what's called the seven factors of awakening, which are, you know, one very handy list to, to point out, you know, what qualities of the mind need to be strengthened in order to be able to see more and more nuance and to see more and more uh, into the depths of what is already happening all the time. So, I have brought a poem also to share with you from the first Free Women book, because I think that really applies. And it's called Tissa the Third. Why stay here in your little dungeon? If you really want to be free, make every thought a thought of freedom. Break your chains, tear down the walls, then walk the world as a free woman. So you know, to break out of that dungeon of what we know and you know, make, it, make our world a bigger world. 
allow more world into our conscious experience by paying attention to certain experiences we haven't been paying attention to because the time wasn't demanding it. So now we can have like about 30 minutes of sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.